This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of December 30th, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to the Best of Defender Radio 2013, Part 1. While APLA is busy getting ready for 2014, we're bringing you some of our favorite interviews from the last year. Please sit back and enjoy. Biff Naked, Episode 104, October 28, 2013. When she's not busy being a rock star, a spokesperson for the fight against cancer, a businesswoman, a vegan yogi, or an artist, Biff Naked is a protector of fur-bearing animals. A longtime supporter of APFA, Biff has regularly spoken out against the cruelty of the fur trade and trapping industries. She joins Defender Radio to discuss how her journey led her to being an advocate for numerous causes and why she's able to maintain a positive outlook on life. Biff, you're an extremely spiritual person. How did you begin on that path? Well, you know, um, my parents were missionaries. So the, the home that I was raised in uh, was a very, uh, a very nice bubble. <laughs> it was a very happy and uh, spiritually supportive world that I came into. And uh, just kind of by accident, geographically, I was uh, born in this incredibly auspicious place. And uh, my parents were living and working in India at the time, uh, as was my birth mother. So a lot of, uh, a lot of my upbringing has been uh, very, um, I guess, spiritually and culturally diverse. And uh, there was a bit of a duality that went on, even though my parents were Christian missionaries, they always wanted to encourage and support uh, what was considered our birthright as Indian-born children, uh, and we were very, um, very much uh, kind of, I guess, enmeshed in Hindu theology and also Hare Krishna when I became older and, and started to become just more interested in all the deities and uh, gods and demigods. Um, You know, I fixated on Krishna because he was such a friend of the gopis and the animals. So this is something that I identified with very young, and uh, it stayed with me. And then throughout my adolescence, um, you know, I was encouraged to, to push further into this. And, of course, there were a lot of punk rock kids at the time that kind of um, discovered the Hare Krishna movement, and it really became uh, like a Krishna punk uh, socio-political movement. But more than anything, more even than religious, it was basically uh, a conscious philosophy. You know, it was a mindset, and uh, most of the Krishna punks, obviously were vegetarians or vegans, and, uh, and you know, that awareness uh, just really was always permeating my thought and my consciousness. So, you know, once I was an adult, uh, I started to really implement a lot of those beliefs into my life. 
Did your childhood homes and travels influence your perspective of animals in some way? Oh, certainly. Like, it, I mean, we were raised in North America, for sure. And, of course, uh, we had been to zoos and everything. My father moved up to uh, northern Manitoba when we were little kids, and then we moved to Kentucky and then back to Winnipeg in our teenage years. We had a family dog, and dogs have always been a big part of my, my personal life and my, my family life. So, I mean, you know, family lover, a family of dog lovers and animal lovers. My sisters had hamsters and, you know, all, all the other pets that kids had in the 70s and 80s. Um, but, you know, in India, my parents had brought back with them a collection of photographs from the various communities that my father worked in. Um, he was a dentist. And, uh, you know, it was not unusual for them to see uh, bears in the town that were um, entertainment or or used for entertainment from from some of the traveling uh, people that would frequent the town square. So we started early to see photographs of this. And plus, in the 70s and 80s, I think that every girl in fifth grade had a rabbit's foot. You know, I think that everyone had a pink rabbit's foot keychain or something like this. And it's remarkable to me now because where I live in British Columbia, that's not cool. <laughs> so that's just not, people just don't have that type of thing here without being called out on it. Usually, like someone will, you know, point it out to you. Hey, do you know that's, you know, that's somebody's pet? Like, do you, do you get that? Like, hey, do you know that's not, that's not okay? Uh, but, of course, other places in the world, geographically, these types of things still are very, very popular. And I am always very, uh, very shocked by this and, you know, start to realize that I do really live in my happy little bubble where, you know, I'm not, I don't have a lot of uh, exposure to just kind of the mindless, the mindlessness, I guess, of it all. Like the, the disconnect that seems to be, you know, never mind the disconnect of people's diets. That's a totally separate subject because it's such a, a huge part of the world. But the, the whole rabbit foot style, mindless, you know, um, use of, of animals is something that I still I find shocking now. At what stage did animal welfare and advocacy become part of your life? You know, when I got into my um, early 20s, so we were, um, you know, kind of headed vegan anyway, just because of, you know, the, the punk movement, the Krishna punks, you know, that was kind of permeating our minds anyhow. Um, I think that it all just, kind of blended into one one effort, uh, one personal effort rather than different separate causes. You know, the the animal rights, the farm animals, the fur-bearing animals, all kind of all under one umbrella uh, for me. And I think that every year that passes, my hope as an individual is that I evolve and that I refine, fine-tune, and amp up my awareness, uh, my service, you know, and my ability to communicate or 
or try and uh, express myself and my and and what I my hopes are. Um, I just hope that I can be more effective every year, and also refine my own awareness and my own life. You know, when someone makes a decision consciously to go vegan, to self-identify as vegan, it's not as simple as switching from chicken to tofu. You know, there are many different areas in our lives that we can uh, make a better effort, and that's as consumers and in some of the products in our homes and the, the cleaners and the, the fabrics we use and just so it's just so many different things that we can do that will encompass that and allow us to have a vegan lifestyle rather than simply a vegan diet. And so it all kind of falls under the same umbrella. And the fur, um, you know, uh, is, uh, is a whole, uh, it, it's a frustrating a frustrating topic many times um, because a, a lot of people will kind of say, well, it's the same as leather, and a lot of people will find other excuses and, and try and, um, I guess, discredit uh, someone who's trying to be <laughs> expressive about about what their beliefs are. And uh, it, it's always interesting. And again, debating is healthy and good, and I love it debating and and uh, it's worth it. For animal lovers and those who are focused on human rights or other issues, it can be very difficult to keep going. How do you stay so positive? Oh, it is hard. It is our whole life's work. I believe that is our life's work. It is brutal. I mean, to have to, you know, I know so many people, myself included, from time to time, when you you know how much uh, just... Just what people are capable of doing and uh, what people will justify in activities and in animal cruelty. And you just think, how can I go on? How can I go to the grocery store and eat this papaya knowing this is going on in the world right now? Like really, you know, sometimes and for many people, it becomes just too much to bear. There's so much pain, tragedy, terror, fear in this world. And it's hard sometimes to keep perspective, to stay positive and to keep working um, and doing what what you do to either raise awareness, try and change mindset. You know, like many things in life, um, in this world, you know, there are so many things in our culture, in the cultures all over the world you know, whether it's bare bile farming, uh, whether it's civil war in Africa, whether it is, um, you know, hate crimes that go on in the world. I mean, there's so many things that occur on a day-to-day basis. Sometimes it seems like it will be so daunting. There is no possibility that a person, an individual who has any semblance of consciousness or, um, you know, compassion, how, how can we go on? How can we be positive in a day? But really, I think that I never lose faith in humanity, first and foremost. Um, I don't think that individuals define or dictate what 
an entire culture believes. I also don't believe that individuals can ruin humanity, from my perspective, on humanity. Um, you know, there there are people who work in animal rescue, for example, and uh, occasionally us lay people will uh, be privy to images or stories of such insurmountable horror that I ask myself, I don't know if I could effectively do that job without having my knees absolutely buckle every day. How do they do it? And I just marvel at it because I think, and they do it, and they are clear-headed, and they are effective, and they're, they're good at what they do, and they're compassionate, and they get up in the morning, and they do it again because the need is always there. And I think that's the bottom line. The need is there. The calling is there. You know, there is always going to be uh, a reason to keep going in any movement, whatever it is, whether you're uh, fighting for civil rights, whether you're fighting for animal welfare, whatever it is. There's always a reason, no matter how daunting or defeated uh, that we get, whenever it seems like, you know, we're not making a dent. Uh, there always is. There always is. We might not be able to see it. There's always good in it. I do believe in my heart um, that the tragedies we experience, they are teaching us. They teach us to be resilient. They teach us to keep trying. They teach us to keep going and keep fighting on behalf of not just on behalf of our own beliefs, but on behalf of animals and the volunteers that work with those animals. You know, it's, uh, I mean, it's never going to be without merit. The, the work that we do or the, the things that we say, our efforts will never be unnoticed, even if it's just by one or two people. Because eventually, eventually, it always, always trickles down, and some somebody will get it that didn't get it the day before, and will save an animal. Some somehow, I just have to believe that, and I think that it's not blind faith. I think that that's what most people really believe. They really believe that it will make a difference, and it will. You support a lot of different causes, which run the gambit from animal rights to breast cancer. Is it difficult to justify protecting animals while we're still looking for a cure for cancer and solutions to poverty? Oh, it's important to care about everybody. Like, and, and that's my point. I think that there is room. We do have room in our efforts. Everyone has room in their efforts. And people like supporting um, medical foundations and helping patients. And people like supporting children's charities. People like supporting humanitarian organizations. Uh, that work in the Middle East and, and in Africa, you know, of course. But I always say there's also so much that we can do to raise awareness. And when you bring awareness about protecting wildlife and protecting um, creatures, critters, animals from the fur industry and from the fashion industry and from you know, bio farming from all of these atrocious things 
they serve no purpose. There is no purpose to that. And they are horrendous. You know, it's, to me, it's common sense. I don't think it's because people who defend animals, I don't think they're any more um, benevolent or, or kind than any other human. I think everyone has it in them to help and support organizations. It's common sense. It doesn't make sense to me that, you know, people need these products. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So, you know, my, my truth, living my truth is just to verbalize, it doesn't make sense to me. And hopefully I might influence someone else who would go, oh, I guess it doesn't make sense, and they will stop supporting that industry too, like anything. It it just seems, it just is so much common sense to me. How can can we not protect, protect animals? How can we not? Thanks for joining us, Biff. To find out more about Biff and her upcoming shows, events, and projects, visit her website at www.biffnaked.com. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. Over 3 million animals are killed each year in Canada for their fur. This holiday season... Why not give the gift of hope to Canada's wildlife by calling 604-435-1850 and giving a holiday gift today? The Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals works to protect wildlife in Canada. Call 604-435-1850 and please, give generously. Give a voice to the animals who can't speak for themselves by calling 604-435-1850. Bearsmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. At Bearsmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at Bearsmart.com. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America's song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing Keystone species. This is Defender Radio. Brad Gates, episode 101, October 7th, 2013. I'm pleased now to welcome Brad Gates, president of Gates Humane Wildlife Control. In addition to being a good friend of mine and APFA, Brad is perhaps the best friend fur-bearing animals can have in an urban area. Gates Wildlife Control has spent nearly 30 years developing humane methods to safely remove wildlife from homes and businesses, always keeping the welfare of animals a priority. Today we're chatting with Brad about urban wildlife, specifically raccoons and squirrels, and why they seem to love calling our homes their homes. Brad, before we get going, is there any difference between wildlife populations in the wild and those in urban areas? Mother Nature uh, controls wildlife populations based on the availability of food and shelter. Um, In the wild, 
food opportunities and shelter opportunities are not that abundant, but in the city, uh, through our green bins and um, other waste that we put outside, the animals have access to much more food. And then we look to the houses where we have chimneys and attics, uh, shelter opportunities are also abundant. When an animal has that much access to food and shelter, they can breed at a higher rate than they would normally breed in the wild. So we're seeing litter sizes in the city in the range of five to seven babies, where studies have shown that litters born in the wild are generally only one to three. So the population is almost doubling at a rate twice as fast as in the, uh, the wild. Most urban centers seem to have a great deal of green space these days. Why do raccoons and squirrels prefer our attics over a nice tree or a field somewhere? They're always looking uh, for den sites that are safe from predators um, and that are also protected from the elements. In urban areas, obviously, there are more opportunities than in the wild. So once an animal discovers an attic inside a home, chances are they would never return to a hollow tree. Attics provide these large inside areas that are dry and protected from the elements. Um, they also have soft bedding called insulation, and uh, they're even slightly heated during the winter months. If I was a raccoon, that's exactly where I would want to live, in an attic. If I or someone in our audience thinks they have a wild animal in their attic, what should they do first? So many of our customers um, tend to wait for sometimes months, even we've had customers wait as, as long as a year in hopes that the animal would simply move out on its own. Um, my advice is to get them out as soon as possible. Uh, the longer you wait, the more damage they're going to cause and the more it's going to cost in the long run to repair the damage that they've done. Definitely uh, jump on it as quickly as possible um, You know, within the first week or so once you've identified that you do have them inside the house. How are these animals getting into our attics to begin with? From my experience, um, most wildlife are like little tiny home inspectors. Um, they probably know your house better than you do as far as the outside structure goes. So they're constantly looking for den sites. So they're, they're always up on top of rooftops looking for flaws in the structure that they can eventually exploit. What they're looking to do is get their nose in an opening. And once their nose is in, they can begin to chew on that opening and make it larger. There are structural elements on most houses that are prime for animals to target, and they are roof vents. Roof vents are only made of lightweight aluminum, and inside they just have a, like a window screen. So it's nothing for a raccoon to tear the lid off a roof vent and then claw through the window screen and then climb inside. Um, they also will exploit a plumbing vent pipes, which are the, if you look on your roof, you see a black pipe coming in, which actually allows the wastewater to be followed by air out to the street. Underneath that rubber mat is generally a hole bigger than the pipe itself. And raccoons have learned over the years that if they rip up the rubber mat, they can enlarge the hole beside the pipe and get into the attic. They're also looking for rotten wood. Um, it amazes me how easy it is for a raccoon to discover rotten wood even beneath the shingles. There must be an odor that they pick up on because they'll go to a middle of a roof and just looking at the roof, you wouldn't see that there was a, a, a problem there. But when you look at after they've gotten in, and start to manipulate the wood, you realize that it was rotten long before the raccoon came along. So overall, they're, they're just looking for weaknesses that exist um, on a rooftop. And uh, from a raccoon to a squirrel, they'll uh, once they get 
their nose into the spaces, they'll find a way in. Is there an easy way to figure out what animal is living in the attic? It's not always easy. Um, it depends on whether the animal can move freely in the space or if it's restricted to a wall. But generally, a raccoon, um, being a much heavier animal than a squirrel, and they tend to walk, not run. So if you were to hear the slow kind of lumbering uh, activity of a raccoon moving from one side of this room to the other, um, it tends to be a raccoon, whereas a squirrel is much more hyper, even if you watch the two of them on the outside moving about in our backyard. Um, the raccoon is in, doesn't appear to be in any great hurry, but the squirrel is always rushing from point A to point B. So a squirrel is a much more quick pitter-patter. It take a matter of seconds for it to go across, say, a six-foot span, where a raccoon would, would take uh, much longer. Chewing with squirrels, um, because they're rodents, their front teeth are always growing, so they need to grind them down. So lots of chewing, uh, generally in one specific spot. They like to pick a chewing post in, a, in an attic and go back to that time and time again. So if that's being heard, likely you have uh, squirrels. And certainly in the spring, um, baby squirrels don't make any uh, vocalizations in an attic, but raccoons definitely do. It's a chittering sound the raccoons make. It's unmistakable once that happens, once the babies are born and they're starting to, uh, to vocalize when mom goes out at night. What are raccoons and squirrels doing up there once they get in? Most often, uh, once they've torn that hole in the roof um, and begin to move about within the attic space, they're just simply by walking on the insulation, they're packing it down. Often when they pack down the insulation, in the case of blown-in insulation, they expose wiring. And if the wiring is there for them to chew on, they will, they will definitely um, go after that. They also use the attic as a washroom, which will create odors um, in the house if it's allowed to accumulate. And even if it penetrates through the insulation, it can cause ceiling stains. Um, and in the spring, their primary goal, um, once they're inside the attic, is to, uh, to raise the family. So they're giving birth to up to seven babies. And then the damage even gets worse from that point because when you only, at some point, had one adult animal moving about inside the attic, now you can have up to eight. So the, the damage that occurs um, is compounded by the number of animals that are up there. Is there anything wrong with just letting the animal stay up there? Yeah, there, there's a lot wrong with living with a wildlife problem in your home. First off, the hole that they've created is going to let rain and snow in, causing water damage um, in the attic itself and between the walls. And anytime you have moisture trapped uh, inside a home, you have the potential of having mold growing, um, which can also be very harmful to the residents. If they choose through the wires, there's always the potential of a fire, so that's that's a concern. And uh, and their feces, um, and especially in the case of raccoons, uh, can be harmful if someone was to go up in the attic and inadvertently come in contact with that feces. Bottom line is you, sh you shouldn't live with them. You should get them out as soon as possible. And after all, it is your number one investment. You should take care of it. Won't a raccoon or a squirrel just leave on their own after a while? Generally what happens in the case of raccoons, the mother raises the babies for nine months. So she'll give birth early spring and then have those babies up until January. There may be a period of time during the summer months where the attic might become too hot for them and they might go live under a, a deck. But as soon as the weather starts to turn again or rain uh, occurs over a period of time, 
they'll definitely go back into that den site. But in January, the mother will kick the babies out of the attic, and then uh, she will continue to live in the space and, and go through the whole process again. So our, our experience is um, if they do leave, it's only temporarily, they will be back. What do you do once you get the call from someone who has an animal in their home? First, uh, upon receiving a call to our office about a problem, we would arrive on location, do a thorough inspection of the rooftop, determine all the points of entry, and we also look for potential points that they're going to try to exploit to get in. Based on that information, we provide a free estimate. There's no obligation for us to be out on that site and, and give you a price on what it's going to cost. During the birthing season, the first step for us to proceed is to go into the attic and locate the, the family of raccoons. Um, hopefully, the mother uh, will move off the babies. Um, about 50% of the time, that's the case. The other 50%, she'll stand over them. Our goal is to get the babies away from her so that then we can use them as bait to uh, lure her out of the attic. Sometimes she will pursue us in the attic, but again, we, we have to be on our toes. The babies are then taken to the outside, and either the mother can be lured out or, or we will use a one-way door to let her come out at night. The babies are put in a heated release box, which keeps them warm, especially during the early months of March and April, where their, their body doesn't have the fur on to keep themselves warm. So we want to keep the babies warm while the mother comes out to collect them. Um, once she's outside the one-way door, she's locked on the outside. She then needs to relocate her babies to an alternate den site. So once all the animals are out of the house, we secure the, the entry hole. We put shingles on if necessary. And that generally is the, uh, the entire process, with uh, the exception of if there were other areas on the house that needed to be animal-proofed, we would do that as well. What can homeowners do to prevent animals from getting in in the first place? Animal proofing is, is key, so to look to have a professional wildlife company come out, look on the roof, and look for the most common points of entry, which we talked about being uh, roof vents. We want to screen the roof vents so that raccoons can't pull the lids off. We want to screen the plumbing vent pipes so that they can't rip through that rubber membrane. Um, uh, chimneys also need to be screened because they resemble a hollow tree in the case of raccoons and the squirrels often will fall down. So just to have a company give a once over of the house and identify the most common areas where animals do uh, like to get in. All right, that was Brad Gates of Gates Humane Wildlife Control. To find out more about Brad or get in touch with him, visit his website at gateswildlifecontrol.com. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at GatesWildlifeControl.com or call 416-750-9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at ArrivalLive.org. 
Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg hold, conibear, and other body gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Furbearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at furbearerdefenders.com to find out how you can give hope for our furbearing friends. This is Defender Radio. Dr. Aisha Akhtar, episode 107, November 11th, 2013. We all know the future depends on how we treat non-human animals, but Dr. Aisha Akhtar has taken it a step further. Dr. Akhtar, a preventative medicine and neurology specialist, works for the Office of Counterterrorism and Emerging Threats at the Food and Drug Administration in the United States. She has authored a book, Animals and Public Health, Why Treating Animals Better is Critical to Human Welfare, which combines her medical background with a personal love of animals. Dr. Akhtar joins Defender Radio to discuss her book and why public health is at risk if we continue to treat non-human animals as we do. Her views and opinions do not represent those of the FDA or the United States government. Dr. Akhtar, how did you combine your medical background with your interest in how animals are treated? I actually started, before I even went to medical school, I started to learn um, about the plight of animals, and um, I was very interested in bioethics, even when I was in high school, and through bioethics, I learned about our relationship with other animals and what that meant for us, and um, it really led me onto the path to uh, change my diet to one that is now completely vegan, and to change how I think about our relationship with animals, and My training throughout my uh, medical education through medical school, my residencies, and beyond um, has only confirmed that um, really we need to treat animals better, not just for their sake, but for our sake as well. Our health is very much impacted by how animals are treated, not just as individuals, but as as a group, Um, how we treat animals as a society has a tremendous impact on some of our most significant public health threats that we face today. I've read that factory farms where animals are raised and slaughtered for consumption are breeding grounds for infectious diseases. That's exactly right. Um, you know, now we, there are over almost 70 billion animals, land animals, that are raised for food and killed each year throughout the world. Um, And just to get a perspective, there are about 7 billion human beings. So we have, um, at any one given time, there are almost 10 land animals being raised and killed for food for every one human being. So that's a lot of animals. In the U.S. alone, we kill 1 million land animals every hour for food. That's just in one hour. So in order to raise that many animals um, to meet that high demand, uh, farms are now raising animals in factory farms where they're, they're crammed into tighter and tighter spaces. And they're so jammed up together 
that you know chickens for example barely have room to uh do any of their normal behaviors um egg laying hens for example are in a cage the size of a newspaper um with five or six other hens they can't turn around they can't even stretch their wings and um pigs are in similar situations other birds are in the same situation in factory farms and these farms are not only so bad for their mental health and for their physical health it it they they are breeding grounds for infectious diseases these animals are so packed together in such filthy conditions they are literally lying in their own waste they are constantly breathing in aerosolized fecal matter ammonia pathogens that are in the air it greatly affects their health and their immune system and what this means is that these animals are constantly sick so because they're constantly sick their immune systems are down and they are very prone to catching infectious diseases so we've got a two-prong situation here one is that these animals are so stressed and living in such miserable conditions that their immune systems are down and they're very prone to catching infectious diseases and the second prong here is that because they are so densely packed together it's so easy for infectious disease to be passed on from one animal to another uh, a new pathogen can spread like wildfire in a factory farm situation and what that means is that each time a pathogen spreads from one animal to another it also has the ability to evolve and mutate into a form that makes it even more deadly and um more deadly for human beings this has potential to cause us pandemics especially when we're talking about the influenza virus which can very much emerge and spread among factory farmed animals When we talk about public health issues related to animals, it is primarily animals bred for consumption. So how do wild animals play into this? So that's a good question. Well, wild animals very much play an integral part in um some of our most urgent public health threats we face today. Um three-fourths of emerging and what's called re-emerging infectious diseases come from other animals. So most of our infectious diseases come from other animals. and this is where the wildlife trade comes in the wildlife trade involves shipping and transporting and killing millions of animals each year across the globe these animals may be caught from the wild or they're bred in captivity and they're shipped around the globe for uses as exotic pets they're shipped to stock zoos circuses and other entertainment venues they are shipped to stock biomedical research labs and they are used for exotic leather and fur products and medicinal objects and it's a very very massive trade in fact um the illegal part the underground part of the wildlife trade is very close to um um smuggling of drugs and um uh you know jewels for example in in its um lucricity lucricity <laughs> sorry i got to say that again in i don't i never knew how to pronounce that word um <laughs> um but it it it's a very so um the illegal under the underground wildlife trade is a very profitable industry um very close to the smuggling of drugs and 
as we ship these animals and as we go deeper and deeper into the forest to capture these animals, we're um, exposing ourselves to newer, novel pathogens that we may never have encountered before. And the wildlife trade through the bushmeat trade, for example, in which um, um, animals are caught in traditionally the African bush, but it's increasingly throughout the world in any um, natural habitat where animals are caught for food, um, that has been, um, is the cause behind the emergence of the Ebola virus and HIV AIDS, to name a few. The wildlife trade is also um, the cause behind the emergence of the SARS coronavirus. So SARS is a um, severe acute respiratory syndrome, and it emerged in the Guangdong province of China um, through the wildlife trade. And it was initially thought that um, SARS was um, emerging from contact with civet animals, which are sort of cat-like animals, which are um, caught from the wild and exploited and traded throughout the world for their musk-producing glands. And because of that, China um, executed thousands of these animals by incredibly cruel methods, such as drowning them in disinfectants. It was later learned that the original source of the SARS virus are likely um, a type of large fruit bat. Um, but whatever the original source ends up being, whether it is these fruit bats or some other animal that we have yet to identify, the, the true blame lies in the wildlife trade. The fruit bats were also caught for the wildlife trade, and it's believed that at some point um, in, the, in the trade um, process, fruit bats got into contact with susceptible animals like civet cats, whom were um, already um, suffering from depressed immune systems because of the conditions in the wildlife trade. And so we're very able, easily able to catch the SARS virus and then transfer it ultimately onto human beings. So the wildlife trade is a very, very direct cause of the emergence and spread of new pathogens, dangerous pathogens, pathogens like HIV, Ebola, and I was in Nova Scotia earlier this year talking with people about mink farms, and one concern that was raised was Aleutian disease, a virus that at times can wipe out the entire population of a farm. But my brief reading shows that we know very little about this virus, except it doesn't directly impact humans. Should we be at all worried? Since we don't know what this virus is, it makes it even more problematic, and we don't know what it is capable of doing. It, um, even if it doesn't cause problems ultimately for human beings, it may cause problems for the local wildlife population and could have a tremendous impact on the local ecosystem, which could have then um, impact on human infectious diseases um, ultimately. It's, so the, it's not just capturing animals in the wild that's problematic. It's also breeding animals um, for the wildlife trade. Um, as a matter of fact, there have been many studies that have looked at um, breeding farms of turtles and frogs, and they've looked at their, their rates of salmonella among these animals in these breeding farms compared to the rates of salmonella uh, among these animals in the wild. 
and they find that um, salmonella rates are much higher among these animals in the breeding farms. And that makes sense given what we know about these breeding farms. They are like factory farms for farmed animals. Um, these breeding farms are, are, miser are miserable. Um, they, they have miserable conditions for the animals involved. These animals, again, are, are packed into dense environments. They're very stressful. And um, their immune systems are suppressed again, and so they're more likely to not only catch these infectious diseases, but shed them and manifest them outwardly. And so that makes humans more likely um, able to catch these infectious diseases from handling these animals. So animals in captivity may have even higher rates of a number of dangerous infectious diseases than animals free living in the wild. In a document handed out to municipalities from the BC Trappers Association and the FIC, it is stated that trapping wildlife is a reliable manner in which to protect public health from infectious disease. In your research and work, have you ever come across evidence that would support this? No, I have not. That's, that's actually astounding that someone could even have the gall to, to make that claim about trapping. There, there's no evidence whatsoever that trapping is an effective measure to contain um, pathogens, and trapping is a very uh, indiscriminate way of catching animals. I, I don't know how you can possibly target a specific animal through trapping. Any, any animal can, can walk into a trap, and so um, it's, it's a very ineffective, inefficient, and indiscriminate way of, of trying to catch animals and certainly would not work in containing pathogens. The way to contain pathogens is ultimately by redefining uh, how we treat animals in, in, for the wildlife trade and those animals that are living in the wild. We need to give them room to live as they normally would and not encroach on, upon their habitat as we are increasingly doing. And by increasingly encroaching upon um, the wildlife, we are exposing ourselves to more and more of the infectious diseases that we would never have encountered otherwise. That needs to change for us to really pre prevent the emergence of new infectious diseases. What happens if we don't change the way we treat animals in our homes, in our communities, and in our society? There are a lot of things that's going to happen. One is that we're going to continue to see a rise in our chronic diseases such as heart disease, stroke, and cancers, and diabetes that are largely linked to our consumption of animal products. Second, we're going to continue to see an increase in obesity throughout the world. Again, that is largely linked to our consumption of animal products. Animal products are not the only cause, but it is a significant contributing factor. As a matter of fact, obesity has now passed undernutrition as a major cause for concern in the underdeveloped world. The third thing is that we're going to increasingly see a rise in new infectious diseases. We're already seeing a rapid increase in um, uh, new infectious diseases uh, over the past 10 years, and I suspect that that increase is going to, to um, continue, if not grow, over the next 10 years. And um, we're putting ourselves at serious a threat for a new pandemic. In 1918, there was the, um, the Spanish influenza, 
or the 1918 influenza pandemic. It was called the Spanish influenza because it was first detected in Spain. But it killed more than all the world wars of the 20th century combined. It was a very dangerous influenza virus. Now, we've been lucky so far that we have not seen a similar virus emerge, but it is only a matter of time. As long as we continue to treat animals the way we do and confine them by the billions in these factory farms, go out into the wild, capture them or breed them in captivity and trade them around the globe, we are really putting ourselves at risk for another pandemic that is just as serious and dangerous, if not more, than the 1918 influenza pandemic. To learn more about Dr. Aisha Akhtar, her book, or how human welfare is at risk if we continue to ignore non-human animal welfare, visit www.aishaakhtar.com. Links are also available on this week's Defender Radio blog. That's all the time we've got for this week. This is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.